Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. A lot still to get to in this hour. We'll get to your phone calls as well. Uh, Last month, it was announced uh, that the federal government was pausing its involvement in what's known as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And that we're going to review our ties with the bank. Story here from uh, June 14th. Uh, Canada is freezing its ties with the bank while it probes allegations that the bank is dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, So that was announced by the uh, federal government last month, and that was following the aftermath of a Canadian who was uh, the global communications director for the bank and had resigned uh, because of concerns about China's domination and influence at the bank. Now, just last week, uh, the bank itself said that its review finds that uh, allegations that China has undue influence are without any foundation whatsoever. Now, take that with a grain of salt, because, again, if the allegations are true, would the bank really acknowledge that? So I I don't know how much stock we put in this review. I do think it's important that uh, Canada continues to keep a close eye on this and question whether we want to continue our involvement in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Well, joining us to talk more about this issue is the individual whose resignation kind of uh, sparked all of this. Uh, Bob Picard is a public relations leader and communications counsel, as mentioned, former global communications director with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Bob, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. We're happy to be here. And I know it's been a crazy month for you, but we do appreciate this. I think it's important that Canadians hear about all of this. First of all, what do Canadians need to know about the AIIB, I guess, the bank? What, what is it? Why are we involved in it? Well, the bank was founded back in 2014 by the People's Republic of China, the communist government in China, as an Asian-based alternative to the World Bank, which is based in Washington, D.C., at a very important global American multilateral institution and the purpose of these these banks made up of members from different countries is to provide a form of lending or financing to developing countries so that they can build up their infrastructure or other major projects in productive areas that would be helpful to their economies in the future so the work is very worthy But the power structure behind the money is extremely important because the World Bank, based in Washington, has America as the largest shareholder. And that country, for the most part, tends to share our values, democracy, uh, free press, this sort of thing, you know, reasonably fair courts. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, based in China, it was founded at a time, remember, 2014 was a time when... Xi Jinping was still new, and so Canada at the time and other countries thought this fellow might actually be a reformist, not not you know necessarily the, the dictator or Maoist-type figure that he's become. And at that time, that was a year before Trudeau got elected, back in 15, mm-hmm. and before uh, the Liberal government was elected. So at that time, that was even before there was a proposal from Canada for free trade with with the People's Republic of China, which in retrospect looks like it it should never have been proposed and was probably naive right from the start. So the point I'm trying to make is that things are radically different between Canada and China just nine short years later. You know, we've, we've got the interference in elections. We've got the secret police stations, the espionage, the threats against members of parliament and and the economic bullying, not to mention the two Michaels who were basically kidnapped by a thuggish regime for many months on end. So would Canada, would we really join this organization today if it were new? I think the answer is clearly not. So why should we remain members of this organization? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the two Michaels, Bob, because I understand it, as I understand it, once you you tabled your resignation, that, that it was made clear to you that 
you need to leave China as quickly as possible it became almost a dangerous situation, didn't it? I believe so, because the bank, which is dominated by Communist Party members, knew that I planned to go public with my back in May. I had mentioned my concerns internally to the bank about Communist Party members occupying key positions of power and interfering in the proper business of the bank. I was in charge of communications, for example, through the window or the lens of my experience. I found out that I had a Communist Party informant in my department who was basically uh, reporting the goings-on in, in, in my area of the business all the way up to the president's office. And I frankly didn't take kindly to having like a, a, you know, a secret surveillance person working in my business unit. I thought that was not exactly a comfortable arrangement in what's supposed to be a multilateral organization made up of all these different countries. That, that was more of a, a mainland China, you know, security state thing to do. That was just one small example of what rubbed me the wrong way about the arrangement. And I thought, I thought because I attended my resignation and because they knew what I was planning to do about going public, I thought I should get to the airport as soon as possible. And that's what I did. Yeah. Well, but I mean, this is the thing. You, you saw all of this firsthand, right? So I did. you were witness to this. It was interesting to see then the bank come out and, and say last week that hmm. they don't believe any of this is, is founded. I mean, what are we to make yeah. of, you know, the bank's position or their denials here? Yeah, I saw that report. And, you know, it was, in my opinion, just a pack of lies, really. Mm-hmm. They they didn't even address my allegation. I I alleged that there was a, a, a power center of people un, uh, basically invisible uh, underground or subterranean in the bank who, uh, who were not, whose power was not evident to people outside of the bank, including the various Western countries who are members. But the bank's report, it said there is no Communist Party influence on board decision-making. Well, I never alleged there was any impact on board decision-making. I alleged there was a, there was a uh, a surveillance, and there was a, a you know a, a, a suspicion throughout the bank, creating a toxic culture by a group of Communist Party members whose activities were uh, organized, or uh, you know they were very active in getting things done from a party perspective. But this was not part of the governance structure of the bank. And then then the bank's report also, you know, it went into you know stuff about you know I was. They made some, you know, criticisms of me personally, or or I was this, or I was that. But you know, I, I tendered my resignation, and the president tried to talk me out of resigning. So they made it seem like I was I was fired or something. Right. So they're trying to change the topic, but unsuccessfully, I think. Do you think you know that, that things can change? Is reform possible, or is is it just kind of beyond salvaging at this point? That among Western countries. Everyone's going to take a harder look at the structure of the bank and the unusual concentration of power in the president's office at the bank, which resembles the concentration of power in the the president's office in China. I mean, it's a strongman system with a top-down directed leadership style. So I think countries will be insisting on greater openness, greater transparency, and a, a more measurable degree of accountability in the organization. A lot of the lending in the bank, $100 billion, goes to some worthy projects. But if you look at the map, these projects are along you know, the old Silk Road, which the Chinese government is trying through the Belt and Road Initiative uh, to turn into the, the future of the Chinese economic hegemony over, over Eurasia. So... The lending, in many cases, has a good purpose, but who's going to get credit for that lending, Rob? Do you think Canada, with our investments, do you think we're going to get any credit for building up the infrastructure in Uzbekistan or in, in uh, you know, Bangladesh or some of these other countries? I don't think we're going to get any credit. I think the Chinese government and its geopolitical ambitions, they will get plenty of credit for us. And so why, why are we, with all China has done, to ruin the bilateral relationship with our country. Why are we supporting this, I ask? 
So I mentioned, you know, a month ago, so after your resignation, uh, you know, the government announced that we were freezing ties with the bank. All of it was on pause while we reviewed the situation. That was an encouraging response, but I think there was also the concern that maybe once some of this blew over, it would just kind of be back to business as usual. What's your sense of your understanding of where Ottawa's at right now? Well, what you've described is definitely a school of thought here. That's often the case with almost anything the government's involved with, that it will take a long time or it'll just sort of taper off. I met with the government in Ottawa last week in the Department of Finance. I, I gave them a, a fulsome briefing on the situation. I found them very, very acute. Very, they were listening very carefully. They, they, they took a strong interest. They took a lot of notes. I think they're processing this right now. And I also know they're discussing this with their counterparts in other G7 countries. So it's not just Canada alone, I think, here that's worried or concerned about this. They're taking it very seriously. And, you know, if my my concerns were completely uh, groundless or without foundation, I don't think our government would be taking such a careful look at this. And I also believe, well, I've seen this in the media. Apparently, the government of Canada had concerns about the bank before my resignation provided them with the opportunity uh, in the news to react the same day. I think, I think they already had, had, had some uh, news that were, were going through their minds, which required uh, some, some form of reassurance or, or resolution from the bank end. So perhaps we're on the same page here. But we'll see. You know, yeah. We're, we're going to find out, I should think, by the end of the summer what, what the government's decision is. Well, we'll watch that closely, see where it goes from here. Bob, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks, Rob, for your interest. Take care. All the best, Bob. Take care. That's uh, Bob Picard, as mentioned, former uh, Chief Communications, Global Chief Communications Director with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And his question, I think, is pretty simple. This bank were founded today. Would we join? I don't think there's any chance we would. Right? So when you go back and you think about you know, the idea of a, a Chinese alternative to the World Bank. This is going to be, uh, you know, centered in Beijing, all, all of this. Like, yeah, i uh, not so sure. Now, there are 106 members worldwide, including Canada. But, yeah, things are a lot different. Things have definitely changed over the last five, six, seven years. Yeah, maybe 2015, 2016, there was some hope that maybe China was going to be a, a better global player, partner. Maybe they were interested in multilateralism, working with other countries, uh, but it's become abundantly clear now that they aren't. And it should come as no surprise at all uh, that they're trying to assert all kinds of control over this bank. You'd have to be pretty naive to think that a bank that was founded by China, is based in China, is not actually controlled by China. Like, like who's going to fall for that? And here's the thing. So Bob Picard was there. He was on the inside. He was in a high position at this bank. He saw it all firsthand. This isn't just what he heard from someone else. This is what he saw. And so I think those concerns should be heeded. So for the bank to say, no, you know, this guy's out to lunch. Well, I mean, choose who you're going to believe. It's pretty clear to me uh, who we should be listening to. I mean, I think the bank's got a, a vested interest in painting things a, a, a certain way. And, and look, I mean, you know, Bob left this job. And, and this is what he saw while he was there. Now, meanwhile, the prime minister is in Lithuania for a key summit uh, involving NATO leaders. Now, earlier, the prime minister was in Latvia uh, to meet with uh, that country's leader. And the prime minister was asked about his expectations for this NATO summit. I think this upcoming NATO summit in the next two days uh, next door in Lithuania is going to be incredibly important. Uh, There is a few things uh, that we will be demonstrating and showing. First of all, uh, demonstrating to Putin and to authoritarian leaders around the world uh, that NATO stands strong and united in its defense of our values, of uh, the principles uh, that lead to people being able to choose their own futures. Uh, We will continue to show our solidarity with Ukraine and demonstrate by continuing being there, including with multi-year commitments that demonstrate uh, that uh, NATO countries and countries around the world continue to stand against Russia's continued illegal invasion and its war crimes. 
We will also uh, hopefully uh, be able to welcome Sweden uh, into the NATO fold. Uh, there's been a lot of work going on and Canada has been uh, very active behind the scenes in pulling, uh, pulling this together as, alongside others uh, and we are uh, hopeful that we're going to be able to get through. There's still work to be done, so it's not done yet, but uh, that is one of the things we want to see. And finally, this uh, NATO summit will be a demonstration and a reinforcement of the fact that the world is changing, uh, that investing in collective security is more important than ever before. Well, it, it certainly is, but I think there will also be some tough questions for Canada's prime minister. Remember the story that came out a few months ago that we'd apparently been uh, privately saying to our NATO allies that we are not going to meet that 2% defense spending commitment, 2% of GDP. The story the CBC had today suggesting that Canada is going to press for an expansion of that definition. So maybe we could try to include other spending as a way of maybe getting us closer to that 2% target. Uh, so a lot going on around this summit. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Timothy Sale, who's a NATO historian, uh, associate professor of history at the University of Toronto, director of the International Relations Program at Trinity College at the U of T. Professor Sale, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much uh, for having me, Rob. Great to be here. Well, first of all, your own assessment as to, you know, what's going to dominate at this summit uh, and, and how important this is. Sure. I, I agree with the prime minister that this is an important summit. And there were three big things coming up. Um, I think we might have answers on some of them. But one was Ukraine. What is Ukraine's relationship going to be with NATO going forward? The second one was defense spending. And for Canada, that means is Canada going to be sort of put under the gun on on defense spending? And then third, this question of Sweden. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there going to be movement there with Turkey? And is there is there are we going to inch closer to Sweden joining the alliance? Right. And, and on that latter point, yeah, it's because it doesn't seem to be an issue with Finland um, because both, both of those countries had ended that long neutrality and in, in sought membership in NATO. Finland was less of an issue. So why has Sweden been a sticking point? That's right. Well, there's this really sort of remarkable spat that I don't think many people knew about between Sweden and Turkey, which is a NATO country, has been a NATO ally since 1952. And this had to do with some Turkish expatriates living in Sweden, um, all sorts of disagreements between those two states. Uh, but as a result of that, Turkey has really used the Swedish membership issue as a bargaining chip um, in dealing with other NATO allies. And just today we saw the Turkish uh, leader Erdogan suggesting that if there's movement on Turkey being admitted to the European Union, then maybe Turkey would... Uh, open the door to Sweden joining NATO. So a very complex and confusing uh, relationship there, but one circling around Turkey's uh, resistance to Swedish membership. Well, yeah, that, that's the more immediate pressing issue when it comes to NATO's membership. There's also that question that's that's going to come up at this this summit because, of course, Ukraine aspires to join NATO. And I know there's going to be a lot of talk about clearly the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion. But what about the bigger question of a possible path here to Ukraine's membership? Yes, this is, I think, the most important aspect of this summit, thinking about NATO's future and uh, whether Ukraine has a place in that. Prime, uh, President Biden yesterday said that Ukraine would not join NATO during this current war, during the Russian invasion. And that uh, adds a bit of clarity to the issue, but it leaves open this question of what happens when this war ends. And we have a lot of NATO allies um, pushing on the alliance to speed up the process so that Ukraine can join the alliance quickly after the end of the war. But of course, that complicates the current war as it as it goes on. How will the Ukrainians and the Russians take this calculation into their decisions during the war? So it, what I'm watching for at this summit is how the allies um, speak about and eventually write down in their communique what they see as a future relationship between Ukraine and NATO. It will set the path going forward, and there are a few options available to the alliance. 
Well, it's interesting because it seems like, you know, bigger picture, this this Russian invasion has really strengthened and unified NATO as an alliance. But to what extent are there some disagreements about, you know, NATO's future uh, inclusion of Ukraine and its membership? Or even, you know, some disagreement, it seems, on the issue of uh, providing Ukraine uh, cluster munitions, what the U.S. is, is currently prepared to do. So are, are there some disagreements here? Yes, I think there are. I, I think you're right that the Russian invasion of Ukraine sort of was a wake-up call to Europeans, especially as to why NATO is important. So on one hand, you have a lot of NATO allies coming together, working on new defense plans, spending more money for the defense of NATO itself. And there's agreement on that, I think, real agreement that NATO is important, that it should be funded, and it's here to stay. But where the disagreement lies, I think, is whether NATO should expand to include Ukraine. And there, there's real disagreement. Um, at the moment, of course, there's a war going on in Ukraine, and NATO allies are not fighting there. Membership of Ukraine in NATO would mean that all of the allies um, have promised to come to each other's aid in case of a conflict. So. Right. What would happen if Ukraine was a part of NATO and war was to reemerge there again? Um, I think that we have real disagreement sort of under the covers here uh, at NATO, um, not on whether NATO is important, but whether NATO should grow to include Ukraine in the future. What about Canada and its place in NATO? Uh, I mean, it's it's a, an alliance that clearly we benefit from, and there, there's been concern and criticism that maybe Canada hasn't done its part, especially when it comes to defense spending. So how, how much is that likely to dominate some of the conversation? Or might there be some awkward questions for Canada? I think so. I think that's right. I think you mentioned off the top that uh, there were these news stories in the United States this year about Canada's lack of defense spending. Just recently, the British Minister of Defense was sort of pointing out that Canada wasn't carrying its weight uh, in the alliance. And so I think Canada is going to be under, under pressure to increase its spending. And I think that's directly related to the Prime Minister's statement in Latvia that Canada is going to increase its forces there in the coming years. I think that the Canadians are trying to argue that the actual dollars spent on defense are less important than what Canada is doing, and it's going to point to uh, Canadian armed forces in Latvia. The problem is, though, at the end of the day, the amount of dollars you spend on defense does matter. It really depends, uh, or it really has impact on what Canada can do. So, yes, Canada is trying to shield itself from criticism by pointing to this new deployment in Latvia, but that is not enough, I don't think, um, to meet the critiques that are going to come from allies. There was a story mentioned at the CBC reporting today that, uh, you know, Canada has been lobbying for, for months leading up to this summit that we need to expand the definition of what might count as defense spending, that if Canada is spending money on research in areas, you know, around safe, uh, space or cybersecurity, or artificial intelligence, maybe that could be viewed as defense spending. I mean, that would be kind of a convenient shortcut for us to get a little bit closer to 2%. But I don't know. How do you see that issue unfolding? Right. Yes, there is a lot of sort of a shell game in NATO with different allies using different expenditures like a Coast Guard or pensions to veterans pointing to these things as defense spending. And so there's always a bit of back and forth as to what should be included um, when it comes to spending on defense. And so Canada here, of course, is trying to expand that definition um, so that money Canada is already spending will increase the percent that Canada has to show for itself at NATO. But I, I really don't think this will fly. I think when the Allies actually look at the size of the Canadian Armed Forces, when they look at the recruiting problems the top Canadian generals are talking about, and really our, our inability to take on roles in the world, that's what really matters. So an expanded definition, I think. Um, it's a good try, but I don't think it's going to be enough. Well, we'll see what transpires over the next few days. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Sale, thanks for your insight on all this. Appreciate you making some time for us here. Thanks so much. Thanks. All the best. Uh, that's Timothy Sale, Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto, a NATO historian, also Director of the International Relations Program at Trinity College at the University of Toronto. So his thoughts on some of these issues going into this NATO summit. There is that question about Ukraine's future membership in NATO.
you know, can it happen? When should it happen? Uh, the prime minister was asked about that today as well. Here's what he said. When I was in uh, Kyiv a few weeks ago speaking with uh, Vladimir Zelensky, I, I highlighted uh, Canada's strong position uh, that we feel very strongly uh, that Ukraine uh, should be joining NATO as soon as conditions allow. I know that is a perspective shared uh, by Christianis and our, our friends here in the Baltics. Um, it is not... It is not as uh, unanimous uh, across uh, NATO to be exactly that strong, but I know there is a deep commitment uh, to Ukraine, to Ukraine's security and to Ukraine's future uh, shared by all members of NATO and the conversations on exactly how we're going to articulate that um, are continuing right now. Uh, but I'm very optimistic that uh, the message that we will send, uh, not just to the Ukrainian government, not just to the Ukrainian people, but also uh, to Russia uh, about uh, how strong and solidaire we all are, uh, is going to be an important one. Okay, so something else to watch coming out of this NATO summit. I mean, it's totally understandable that Ukraine would, would want to be in the NATO alliance. They see their future with the West. They obviously see Russia as an existential threat. Of course, they want that security. Uh, you know, it's the same reason why Latvia and Lithuania, now Finland, three other countries that border Russia, all want to be a part of NATO. The closer you are to Russia, it seems, the more you have to fear from them. And so wanting that blanket of collective security, wanting allies, wanting friends, wanting to deter Russian aggression, that's all understandable. But I guess... There are some in NATO who are going to see this as, okay, well, hang on, but how is Russia going to react to this? As though that needs to be taken into consideration. So there, there's some, some disagreement here for sure. Uh, as much as the invasion itself has really strengthened and unified NATO, not everybody's in agreement on the, a path forward here. So we'll see what comes out in the next few days, some other issues to come up. And yeah, look, I think there will be some tough questions for Canada. The whole point of the NATO alliance is that, yes, look, if, if you're attacked, we'll come to your defense. But the reason why there's that 2% commitment built in is that so that doesn't give countries an excuse to kind of be freeloaders. Like, we don't need to build up our military because we've got all these, these big, tough friends who are going to come protect us. So that's there for a reason, to not give any NATO member any kind of an excuse to, to skimp on their own defense spending because they have this, this security alliance. That everybody's, you know, equally contributing to their own defense. How do you measure that when you've got countries of varying sizes? That's where the GDP percentage, 2% of GDP on defense spending. Canada currently spends about 1.2% of GDP on defense. So we need to do more. You know, we can try to play that shell game of, well, let's count this as defense spending or count that as defense spending. That's not going to fly. By the way, you might have heard the story, I think it was last week or the week before this came out, that Post Media, the company that owns newspapers across the country, including, of course, the Calgary Herald and the Calgary Sun, uh, was negotiating a possible merger with the company that owns the Toronto Star. Well, word today, that merger is not going to happen. Uh, so the talks have ended. Uh, the companies will, will continue going their separate ways. But that story, I think, spoke to some of the, the turmoil that's been happening within the, you know, the Canadian media landscape, which ties in directly to what's been going on with Bill C-18, which has now passed. It's not yet gone into force, but this is the Online News Act. Now, what's also relevant to this conversation, of course, is that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has launched a new app called Threads, which is meant to be like Twitter and is frankly, meant at, at trying to beat Twitter at their own game. Their numbers have grown by leaps and bounds. Now over 100 million signed up. And the expectation is that in a few years, uh, Threads could be generating, you know, some $8 billion in advertising revenue for Meta. So it speaks to the amount of money this company is able to generate through advertising. And advertising that, as supporters of the Online News Act have pointed out, in the past provided a reliable revenue source for Canadian media outlets who in turn then could afford to hire journalists and cover what's going on in this country and in our communities. Now, the problem we have at the moment is that Meta has said, in response to the Online News Act, we're just going to stop linking to Canadian news on our platforms. Rather than paying to have those news links, we'll just 
stop having them. So I think at the moment it's a concerning situation because we lose out. We lose out on possible revenue sources, and we lose out on access to Canadian news. Some new polling up from the Angus Reid Institute shows that Canadians are, are following all of this. And the Canadians certainly have some concerns about the deep pockets of big tech. They're sympathetic to the idea that they pay their fair share. But most Canadians aren't convinced that the Online News Act is the right response to the situation. So joining us uh, to talk more about this, uh, more of these new polling numbers, which you can read at angusreed.org. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dave uh, Korzynski, Research Director at the Angus Reed Institute. Dave, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy Stampede to everybody out in Calgary. I'm, I'm over in Kelowna, so lots of <laughs> lots of Calgary representation in the Okanagan. Uh, oh, yes, no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Dave, I mean, people seem to be following this. You know, you know people rely on, on being informed. People use a lot mm-hmm. of these platforms, so we're, we're connected to this story in a lot of ways. Yeah, when we, we ask people a couple of different ways to understand how they consume news, which I think is an interesting way to kind of start. And if you ask people, you know, you get up in the morning, where do you go? A, you just want to check in on, and, and see what's happening. Um, Canadian news websites online are the number one choice. Uh, 32% of Canadians say that that's where they go. But if you look just beyond that, 28% say they go on Facebook and 23% say that they use Google News. Uh, So that's 51%. So that's half of the population that is using either Facebook or Google for for their primary source, you know, if they they had to pick one. Um, So it shows you the, the level of permeation that those two companies have. And it really underscores the challenge that our news media face is, you know, yes, it is good exposure um, to have your links and your, your stories on those sites, but you do risk that people read a summary of it on Facebook or Google and they, they don't click through that link. Um, and I think that's where uh, the, the disconnect is, is that, you know, Canadian media want to be compensated for the work that they're doing, but there is that it's a very modern challenge, something that we haven't really encountered because these technologies are so new. And how do we divvy up those advertising revenues that are so hard to come by now for more traditional media platforms? So on that point about the amount of revenue these big tech companies are raking in and the argument that they should give something back or they should pay their fair share. So how sympathetic are Canadians to those arguments specifically? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's one of those situations where the initial answer, you might think that they're very sympathetic, but then when you you look at another question, it kind of back off a little bit. So outright, they, you know, about um, 65% of Canadians think that uh, we should be compensating uh Canadian media for using their links. Uh, so the, the companies should have to pay those organizations something. The most popular way is that uh, Canadians would prefer if there was a negotiated amount. This is something that has been uh, done by Google in, in Canada. They have come up with agreements for different media organizations to, to access media. 42% say that they, they like that way of going about it. 20% say that they would just do any time the link is clicked, that's when you have to compensate the the organization for their their content. Uh, that one would be tricky. I think that there'd be, you know, that's a lot of these conversations are how you would go about this. What format would you actually use to make sure that it's a workable situation for both? And then, you know, 39% of Canadians don't think that they should have to pay at all. Uh, so that's, there is quite a bit of tension. Um, between those two views and Canadians are are slightly leaning towards saying that, that these companies should be compensated. Um, and, you know, that that's great for um, the government in pushing the, its, its legislation, but the legislation itself is not particularly popular. Uh, that's where you get the pushback is Canadians are worried about the response and the fact that they might be cut off from these these two platforms and potentially more platforms. So you've got about half the Canadians saying that they think the government should back down and figure out how to reapproach this. So support for paying media, 
uh, from Facebook and Google, but also concern about maybe this isn't the best way to go about it. Um, so, you know, the government certainly has been getting a lot of attention, international attention for this, and uh, it, it's uh, it's one that's going to be interesting to watch and see what they ultimately decide to do here. Yeah, because it seems like the stakes are high. Like the idea of, of losing access to, to Canadian news on these platforms that a lot of Canadians use, that's a big concern at the moment. Yeah, and and you do have, you know, th- this is something where even if even if this isn't the, maybe their top choice, you know, Canadians do use Facebook and Google a ton for for news. So I gave you that 50% who said that it was their top choice. Um, but it's even higher for that, for just utilizing it daily or weekly. And, you know, it's, it is an interesting, you, you'd almost have to kind of test it out. It's, it's hard to, to know what the unforeseen consequences of this would be. You know, if you do, say, get rid of Facebook and Google as a mechanism to drive traffic to these sites, do Canadians just then naturally go to those sites more? Do you, do you seek out the CBC or your city news or another organization or uh, a local new online news organization because you can't have Facebook or Google in there? So right. it is, it's, it's something that, you know, it would be interesting to see if you could simulate it a couple of times and see what the results are um, because we're in this very unknown uh climate right now and i think that's what's making this so challenging is people want to see these news organizations compensated they value the journalism of it but they also want to have the easiest mechanism to find that that news as well so uh we really do have some competing priorities yeah quite clearly we'll see how it all shakes out in the days and weeks ahead much more as mentioned angusreed.org dave thanks again for joining us here this afternoon much appreciate it no problem, anytime. All the best. That's Dave Korzynski, Research Director of the Angus Reid Institute, angusreid.org. So a couple of interesting you know, tidbits in this. So only about 15% of Canadians say they currently pay for an online news subscription to a Canadian news site. And so, yeah, I think there's a preference there. We would rather be able to access news without having to pay for it. And if Google or Meta can help foot the bill for that, then all the better. But it would be a different situation if it were the other way around. Instead of having 85% who do not pay for online news subscriptions, if it were 85%, in fact, who were paying, how different the landscape might be. So that's interesting. So as it stands right now, as he mentioned, based on these uh, survey results, about 32% of Canadians, when when they seek out Canadian news content, they go directly to the Canadian news sites like globalnews.ca or nationalpost.com or whatever the case is. But a majority of Canadians, just over 50%, use Facebook and Google News. Uh, Twitter's in there as well at 14%, which is interesting because, I don't know, I guess we don't think Twitter's making enough money that we don't care about the the news that they're linking to on their platform, or maybe we view Twitter as, as different than Google or Facebook? I don't know. Uh, but that's one place the Canadians do go for news. Uh, 28% use Facebook. 23% use uh, Google. And I think in some cases it's more passive. Like when you're more actively seeking out news, maybe you're more likely to go directly to the source, to the, you know, the media organization's website. But if you're just kind of passively scrolling through Facebook and seeing what catches your interest, you know, it's just a different way of, of media consumption, I guess. So it is interesting, you know, as much as Canadians seem to be sympathetic to the idea of these companies paying their fair share, there's not support for the government's approach here. Only 26% believe Ottawa should stand firm, which is what they said last week, the feds. They're going to stand firm here. 48%, almost half of Canadians, say the federal government needs to back down to take a different approach here. For a long time, Budweiser has been, uh, I guess, truly the king of beers, uh, the top uh, brand in Canada. And uh, with Calgary's stampede underway, I suspect there's uh, many of Budweiser being consumed. Now, there was a push a few years ago at the Calgary stampede. Well, why don't you get more local beers in there? And which they eventually did. But still, you know, you got to follow what the demand is. And so it's interesting to think, well, where does that demand come from? What makes a beer popular? And it's a global market now. 
you know, I remember when Budweiser kind of took over as the number one beer in Canada, there's a lot of concern. Well, that's not a Canadian beer. Well, what is a Canadian beer? Because Molson Canadian, I mean, that uh, comes from Molson Coors, which isn't really a Canadian company anymore. Uh, Budweiser is made in Canada by Labatt, and Labatt was a Canadian company, but it's also part of a big global conglomerate. Anyway, so this all links to the U.S., and so it's been interesting to see what's happening in the U.S. and the change in the market there. Uh, for years, just like Budweiser was number one in Canada, Bud Light was number one in the U.S., now, there's been a political backlash against Bud Light and a partnership, uh, kind of a, a clumsily executed partnership uh, with a prominent transgender uh, social media influencer. It appears as though maybe the backlash against that has cost Bud Light the top spot. So partly this is a story about how, you know, a brand can lose some of its luster or alienate its customer base. But the ascension of Modelo, which is a Mexican beer brand, to the number one spot in the U.S., I find quite fascinating. You know, it's hard to go wrong with a, a good Mexican beer, but I know Corona for a long time was seen as the, you know, the strongest of, of the Mexican beer brands. But Modelo is now not just the number one Mexican beer in the U.S., it's the number one beer, period. How did they get there? It's a fascinating uh, column exploring all of this. Uh, today's Globe and Mail, uh, theglobeandmail.com. Uh, Gus Carlson is a U.S.-based columnist uh, for the Globe and Mail and uh, wrote the aforementioned uh, piece. Gus, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Like I say, I think it's it's an interesting conversation about, you know, not just what drives brands down, I guess, but what also helps them rise to the top. And what's more interesting here to you, what what's happened to Bud Light or where things have gone wrong for them or this remarkable story about how Modelo has emerged as the number one beer? Well, it's a combination of both. Um, I, but if you look at the trends, the the rise of Modelo is really was really inevitable in many ways. Um, you know, it reflects sort of a broader shift toward premium beers. You know, the generations, uh, the beer drinking generations now are are, are seeking more taste, or, or perhaps more taste than they would get from their traditional mass-produced brands. Uh, but you're also seeing in Modelo uh, the fact that the Hispanic American um, Population, the beer drinking age, uh, Hispanic American population has has grown to the point where um, the Mexican brand, in particular, um, has has taken over. So I think the Bud Light controversy and the the um, the staggering drop in their sales after the Dylan Mulvaney uh, issue certainly accelerated the Modelo rise. But I think it was uh, it was going to happen at some point anyway. So there are market factors, there are marketing factors, and as is often the case these days, there are these social factors that a lot of companies are blindsided by. And I think uh, Anheuser Busch and InBev, the, their their European owner, were uh, uh, were were sideswiped by by the Bud Light issue. Yeah, I think they were. But interestingly, I mean, they're kind of connected to. Modelo, or the group uh, that, that owns Modelo, aren't they? Well, it, it, it's very complicated, and, and you said at the top um, that in this era, and I mentioned it in the column, in this era of, of um, you know, sort of mass conglomerations of brands, yeah. Modelo is owned everywhere except the United States by InBev, and in, in the United States, it's distributed by Constellation Beers. So, um, you know, the ownership is a bit um there's a little bit of a, a crossover um but in the u.s it's not it, it's not apples to apples and i think what 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 the point here is that modello has uh has very much embraced its mexican heritage mm -hmm. and this idea that hard work and regular people are who we care about, and those, those are the people who drink. It's not. It hasn't been a, a sort of a lifestyle type brand positioning as it has been so many other beers. Yeah, I want to get into that. It's just on the ownership thing. So, if I buy a Modelo well, in like, Canada, think, think about this, Rob. Yeah. Think about this, Rob. You know the 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 minivan that 
the family in Ohio was driving was probably made in Ontario. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, and the, the BMW that they're driving around at, uh, um, at the Calgary Stampede, it, it may have been been built in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. So, I know, know, it's is interesting. It, is it a German car or is it a, is it a, is it a Canadian car? Or, you know, yeah. right? But it, on, on the so marketing we, side, yeah, go ahead. No, no. So my point is, it's it's hard to trace the lineage now of a lot of a lot of brands because of right. this pan, you know, sort of this this pan uh, ownership situation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it is it is weird and confusing how it works, but it speaks to you know this is this is big business, big industry we're talking about here. And so it's not just that people enjoy your product. I mean, yeah, I mean, Modelo's a good beer, but, you know, it's not, number one, because it's the best-tasting beer necessarily, but it's a success of a lot of this marketing, a lot of changing demographics that you alluded to. But the way in which they've marketed this this beer is really unique. So what have they tapped into here, do you think? Well, I think they've tapped into something that a lot of the big brands, beer brands, have forgotten, and that is... Um, they sort of stated the obvious that, you know, those of us who like a beer after a hard day's work or, you know, after after a game, it is every man's beer or every person's drink. Mm-hmm. And they've tapped into that sense of humility, that sense of modesty. You know, they're not trying to sell beer as something it's not. And I don't mean to sound too markety here, <laughs> but they've kind of gone back and captured the essence of of their their core customers. And in this case, you know, a lot of um, uh, a lot of immigrants uh, into the United States drink it because of that. And their their marketing showcases the hardworking immigrant, the 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 hair cutter in um, you know from East LA who lived in his car trying to make ends meet, and now he's you know cutting hair for famous athletes or the Latina mom who is hosting her, her family for a huge feast. Um, she's a hero. Right. So the heroes of their advertising and marketing are not sort of the, uh, how can I put it? The hip lifestyle people that you see in so many other advertising. It's almost like they're the, the hardworking immigrant. Like Modelo itself, the brand, comes to the United States. It's the underdog. They got to work hard. They got to fight for every opportunity. They work their way to the top. Like they almost, you know, the brand almost embodies that. It does. And even the campaign is called Fighting Spirit. Yeah. Um, and, and Mark of a Fighter is sort of the next iteration that just rolled out in, in the spring. So they really embraced this idea of, and, and your word is perfect. It, it's underdog, and sort of underestimate us at your at your peril. And you know, people. I mean, think about the brands that you use or you care about. And some people are are care about these things more than others. But you know, brands are reflections of who you think you are or who you want to be. So. I think drinkers of Modelo appreciate the fact that here's a brand that's celebrating me in a way that nobody else is. So mm-hmm. I'm going to throw my loyalty behind them. Of course, as you note in your piece, I mean, it was just the, the 4th of July. And, you know, the, the contrast yeah. or the contradiction, it seems, between, you know, patriotism and embracing uh, an import or a foreign product. But maybe those that nationalism isn't as relevant now. What about that side of it? Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. I think I think the reaction to the Bud Light situation really, and again, we're talking about beer here, so this is, you know, we've got to remember what we're talking about. This is, but I would say that beer is a really interesting uh, marker in terms of um, uh, social and increasingly political uh, identity, right? So. I think, and I think the Bud Light situation really shows the fragmentation or the bifurcation of of the American population, and it, you know, the the reactions to the Dylan Mulvaney um, uh, situation uh, was was so strong, and I think it surprised it surprised everybody. But I think it's you know people take brands very seriously and very personally. 
And so, you know, when you reach for whatever beer it is you reach for in your fridge, um, you know, you've made a conscious decision whether you like it or not to to align yourself with, with that brand. And, and it may be around taste. It may be around, um, you know, where it's made. Um, but But there's a decision going on there. It's really fascinating. Well, as mentioned, your piece, it's up at theglobeandmail.com. Gus, thanks for the conversation here this afternoon. Appreciate you making some time for us. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. All the best, Gus. Take care. Uh, that's Gus Carlson, U.S.-based columnist for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. His piece today on Modelo's rise, and I guess partly Bud Light's fall. I mean, there's still, I think, the second biggest beer in the U.S., which I guess is, is good to be. But... Yeah, they're on the descent, and Modelo's on the rise. So it's interesting. You think if Bud Light was going to get knocked out of the top spot, that it would just be, you know, Coors Light or Miller Light jumping in there. So Modelo's an interesting story, but the market itself is so so interesting. You know, the Budweiser would be the number one beer in Canada, and Bud Light would be the number one beer, at least it was for a long time in the U.S. But interestingly, Coors Light has typically done a lot better in Canada than Bud Light. And just that whole weird situation. So if you buy a Modelo in Canada or elsewhere in the world, you're buying uh, an InBev product, which is essentially an Anheuser-Busch product, which is essentially then a Budweiser product. But if you're buying a Modelo in the U.S., it's not. So there's a different company, Constellation Brands, which produces uh, Corona and Modelo for the U.S. market. So the company in Mexico that makes Modelo is partly owned by InBev, which owns Anheuser-Busch. But it's still competing against itself in, in the U.S., if that makes sense. You know, just like with Budweiser in Canada, it's a license that Labatt has to make Budweiser in Canada. But Labatt is part of that whole InBev, Anheuser-Busch uh, company anyway. So, yeah, there's a lot of that that's been going on in the beer industry for some years, and it's not as apparent to the consumer. So, anyway, what makes you loyal to any brand, you know, or, or beer more specifically? Because I think, you know, increasingly local matters, and there's a whole craft beer industry that's emerged. And so it's not just about a Canadian beer, but, you know, having a, an Alberta beer or a Calgary beer or an Edmonton beer. But it's also what kind of beer you like. It's trying to find value. But when it comes to some of these big brands, like when you think of Budweiser, you associate that with something. You think of Molson Canadian, you associate that with something. Or you think Modelo or Corona, right? You associate that with something too. So the marketing success of Modelo is, I think, an interesting story. Probably a lesson not just for other beer makers, but just for other companies in general. So thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.